0: Look at the adjective, play. I man. And I
1: have half the brain the genus. All right, a shot! Hey. I told you. I told you. Now is the franchise going to take the to Viagra?
0: Oh, I'm gonna put some butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode 18 of The Cos WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for making the effort to download us, whether you found us on iTunes, Podbean, or elsewhere. We really do appreciate everyone who takes the time to download this. Don't forget, you can go through our entire back catalogue at thecosw.podbean.com or on iTunes. My name is the Twisted Genius Deal AS. Now, I'm joined as ever by my good friend and colleague, the sports journalist, the man with the blue tick that I'm not too jealous of, Liam Happ. Liam, how you doing?
1: I was doing great yeah. until you brought up this blue tick malarkey again. Oh, man, I'll have to take you to a therapist at this right.
0: I'm not, I'm not letting it go. No, I'm not but you
1: did, it go. you did manage Terry Funk, though. I did. No blue yeah. tick in the world can take that away from you
0: this is very true this is very true indeed yes how you how you been how are things going in the world of Liam Hatt
1: Uh, not too bad I've most spent a fair chunk of the late summer getting a two-year-old through potty training which is going great on the number ones and not so great on the number twos any parents out there will probably know exactly what I'm talking about I won't get any more graphic than that but looking forward to the autumn to come to us because a we might have a little break from this intense weather and b there is a very good wrestling schedule coming i'm i'm attending a wrestling media con in manchester in september very much looking forward to that uh could be a few other things on the horizon and of course then we've got uh, for 10 weeks we've got world of sport on itv
0: absolutely and this is you know the dream this is what we're talking about for you know when i got into the business in 1993 wrestling had been off the telly for you know 5 years at that point and the the ambition for everyone was to get get wrestling back on the tv on mainstream tv and and here it is um you know it's not it's not aimed at your die hard smart fans it is aimed at your your average families this is your your modern day gladiators slot essentially um, but, you know, the success of this is only good for British wrestling as a whole because, um, you know, the companies that I'm working for, we have World of Sport guys on our roster. We have WWUK guys on our roster. The exposure for them, you know, to a, a, an audience, you know, in the in the seven, six or seven figures, it's, mag- it's magnificent. You know, it's something we could only dream of. So long may it continue. Long may it continue.
1: Yeah, uh, I've, I've checked out the first couple of episodes. There's definitely pros and cons to it. I'd say one thing myself personally is that, yeah, it's definitely aimed at the casual. I mean, if anyone knows about aiming for a more casual audience, it's me who's done a lot of general sports writing for Yahoo, which is very much the opposite of writing for passionate, diehard fans of a specific uh, sport or team or even niche. But, um, It's worth remembering that for a very long time now, the die-hard casual fan has not even been watching WWE. May know a few things about it, but if (laughs) there'd be a bigger die-hard casual audience of WWE, if what they were doing was any good. So it does upset me a little bit when you see some some of those tropes that we actually all wish that WWE got rid of in their recent... Uh, programming such as like the three-man announced teams talking over each other the camera cuts everyone goes on about and rightfully so and you'll hear just because you hear diehard fans complain about something more it doesn't mean that the casuals disagree uh, but there is so much good about it as well I mean, I mean just just to tune in on that first episode and see Will Osprey versus British Bulldog Junior you know, Harry Smith as some of us know um, that's the sort of thing you want to see not just not just yeah. for diehard who do recognise and really appreciate guys like that, but you know the son of the British Bulldog and one of the most exciting homegrown wrestlers that we have today. There's they, your casual audience hook. So it's gonna be interesting to see where it is come week ten. But as you said, my word, it's just so good to actually just be there.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I would like to see, I think the I think the one trick that they have missed is that people have come into it cold and what you know i you give you know the the will osprey um harry smith matches as an example just to have like a, a one or 90 one minute 90 second profile piece just to introduce them a little bit to to people i think would make all the difference you think about things that itv do really well as far as their ratings go things like x factor for example and you know the the, the people that X Factor want to push in the audition stage. Yeah, you'll get that one or two minute little profile piece, you know, the sob story about, you know, my parents were kidnapped by aliens and I was raised by wolves on a council estate in Carlisle or whatever it might be. And you get that emotional connection with, with the with the, the contestant. I think that's that's been, to me, the only thing that's been missing from this, just to get that connection with the audience to establish the characters. Because when it comes to a casual audience, it's the characters that that sell. You know, you look at the old era of world of sport and who are the people that, that fans always talk about. Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, Kendo Nagasaki, Mick McManus, the big characters and that's what that's what you need with wrestling.
1: Yeah. People don't think back nostalgically of the of the specific styles of matches. Again, the diehard fans will remember the you know, two fools for finish, the the rounds and things like this. But um yeah, people remember those characters, so that's what you need to emphasise. But you, you mentioned that it is, it is, to an extent, about making a first impression in this scenario. If you think about it, Dean, what makes a good first impression? What are you told when it comes to trying to make a good first impression? Just relax and be yourself. Uh, and that's why I love a little bit more. It's just a little more comfort in the people from the people involved in World of Sport Wrestling to do what they do best and not try to be something else uh, because they're assuming that they have to do what well, I was going to say what mainstream companies do there is one mainstream company yeah. to to do what they do just because they are on a mainstream deal no just do what you do best because what they do best is pretty fucking good uh, and if they get a little more comfort in that you know the the way things are going I'd like to think it's not going to be an abrupt end But and another example to think about I guess is um, think of when you say about introducing the audience to the characters think of the troubles that Paul Heyman had when ECW finally got that elusive TV deal on TNN. And he wanted to spend a large chunk of their first month on the on the network, introducing the bigger potential audience to the, the, the main characters, the, the big time players, some of the storylines. And he was pretty much cut off from that because they wanted... Uh, Obviously, other fear they, they mostly wanted the, the prime content just out there, regardless of context, regardless of... And yeah. it ended up being a bit of a disaster. So hopefully they avoid a situation like that because you've got to, as you said, you've got to build that relationship, make a good first impression.
0: Yeah, definitely. But, you know, it's, as I said, it, it's so good. It's so good to see this happening and long may it continue.
1: Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now Choke
0: on that. Right. Shall we go back in our uh, our little time machine? Shall we go back uh, 28 years to uh, the Great American Bash 1990, which is the pay-per-view we are looking at today?
1: Yeah, why not?
0: So this, is, of course, was the last ever Great American Bash that was presented under The NWA banner, Um, so bloody confusing because they have a big banner up that says World Championship Wrestling, but this was still under the auspices of the NWA because, of course, a year later, 1991, Ric Flair would be in the WWF with Bobby Heenan and the NWA World Title belt. Um, But for this year, Sting is trying to win the NWA World Title for the first ever time. He's facing Ric Flair in a main event that had been delayed due to Sting suffering a legit knee injury in the winter. Um, We'll, we'll talk about that later because I, I think in a strange way that actually helped things um, our hosts are Jim Ross and Bob Cordell very much old school announcers um, they list the top matches of the evening and think about how we've we've talked about before how long it's taken to get the action going for this one less than two minutes into the show we've thrown straight to the legendary ring announcer Gary Michael Capetta and we're underway with match number one
1: yeah two right as well because if as we've always said if you think about it Um, Yeah, it's one thing to provide context for the the TV pay-per-view audience, but there's a live crowd there ready to go, and you kind of need a good atmosphere from them. So work around that. We've always said this, and yeah, as you said, it's it's good to see that that intro, not only was it very brief, but I've got to say um, Jim Ross and Bob Caldwell know exactly how to get their points in. Bob Caller was not exactly the most amazing play-by-play announcer, but he, you know, he had a great voice for it. He was very concise with his contributions, and he usually added a good extra dimension to things. So the, that's one thing I wanted to get in, was that I thought the setup for uh, the broadcast was actually very good, and we'll see more of that as we go forward.
0: Yeah, so opening match is Buddy Landell uh, against Brian Pillman. Um, very odd, I thought, that considering Ric Flair is in the main event, we open the show up with a man who's also called the Nature Boy, he also has long blonde hair, and also wears an ornate robe. Um, a bit of WCW logic coming in there, perhaps. Um, Pillman comes running down to the ramp to a sizable pop. Um, he uh, gets off to a very fast start, lands a quick crossbody block for a two count. Um, the story of the match is that Landell's trying to slow things down as the why the old veteran pillman's trying to speed things up he lands a hip toss a pair of fast drop kicks um landel's in trying to anger the less experienced pillman with the heel tactics of time wasting and slapping Pillman across the face uh they exchange chops pillman misses a drop kick another chop battle ensues. Pillman can really lay him in, I have to say. I was uh, pleasantly surprised by that. Um, Landell slows things down again to the point that even Jim Ross comments on how Pillman hasn't been able to use his normal offense. Uh, the crowd are subdued, but they come to life when Pillman's on the offense again, using fired-up strikes, and he wins with a top-rope cross-body block in nine and a half minutes to a very good reception from the crowd. Not the greatest opening you'll ever see, but the young babyface went over the Wiley Veterans, so, so the right result, and it, it kind of
1: warmed them up nicely yeah they got where they were to be in the end but they they took a little bit too long to do it um i agree with you about that what the fuck is up with the age boy not not just on this show to have two notes but why can you imagine two guys in a, in a mainstream setting doing that now like not just having us because obviously there are certain gimmicks where you have guys doing a similar thing but as you said, it's, it's the, the 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 title of the gimmick, the the moniker, the the dress attire. It's it's pretty much identical. Uh, I am not a Buddy Landell encyclopedia by my own admission, but I don't know if you can offer any insight what the fuck was happening there. <laughs> no,
0: I wish I could. Yeah. No, um, I, I just um, I, I just know that basically, he you know he had this gimmick. Pr- Throughout most of his his career, I think, um, and it just so happened that he was he was the Nature Boys. I mean, they did have a match in this year in 1990. They had the uh, the Battle of the Nature Boys. Um, a few months later, um, and you know, it was uh, Wikipedia tells us that Landau had personal problems, and the storyline was dropped because he he was. Let it go from WCW because
1: of it, but so that was gonna that was gonna be their way of winding Ric Flair down after the event of the the, the <laughs> result of the main event. They were planning on just having Nature Boy versus Nature Boy in like a pretty much a sirloin steak versus McDonald's situation. <laughs> yes. Oh, great. But yes, yeah, speaking of which, yeah, the, the the whole concept of his opener, he works very much finely when we talk about the art of an opener, the thing was is that when you've got the, you know, a deliberate styles clash between the fast-paced athletic baby face and the, and the old school heel trying to slow things down I thought there was there was far too much of that tug of war going Landell's way uh, in the opening slot, this should have been a little shorter a little bit more Pillman, just enough Landell to create the suspense, but yeah, yeah it, it felt like it lasted longer than nine minutes, which is which is not a good thing for an opener. So the the the, the idea for me was right, but the the way it came out was just maybe it's a product of the time because we'll watch a few matches on this and we'll see a little bit of that yeah. where it can but be a little well, bit plodding well. at times, but yeah. yeah.
0: I'll tell you something though was that the the pop that Pillman got really surprised me because I thought yeah you know, it's a hot crowd and and that but the, the 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 pop that other baby faces get you know until you get to the main matches didn't compare at all to that so um yeah you know, that Pillman was really over at this point
1: yeah but I uh, got me he was over and he did deserve that pop and it would have been even better if they'd have kept the crowd with it a little more as I I just mentioned but it's worth saying and we'll see this as we go through this card Uh, for better or for worse and there's some pros and cons of this I feel like this this card was very carefully engineered to ensure that the main event got the absolute maximum uh, atmosphere and effect. Even though you'd expect it to, they did everything they could to build to it and not blow their load. And we'll, we'll talk about this how this builds match by match. But it reminds yeah. me, if you if you look at boxing cards, there are there are some superstar boxers who famously load their undercards, and you generally get a big old uh, star-studded card. Uh, Floyd Mayweather never never really shies away from having like talented fighters and well known fighters on his undercard. Sometimes guys he's thinking about fighting next in the in the world weight divisions he'd have on his undercard. Whereas you know, I think of guys like Manny Pacquiao and a couple of others uh generally would make sure that there's only one belt worth seeing. And Pac Pacquiao's promoted with Bob Aaron once famously gave the quote around twenty thirteen of Nobody gives a fuck about the undercard. Uh, that is debatable. It's 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 definitely a philosophical thing. It's blunt but it's a philosophical thing and you might you might agree with it, you might disagree with it. But we're gonna even though there's there, there's a few really standout undercard matches, we're gonna see a lot on this show that makes you wonder if you've got a big main event, is it worth putting too much else on the show? Uh, obviously, the the business model is different in this day and age, but it's food for thought.
0: Yeah, I would say as far as as far as wrestling goes, um, I think yeah, it's very much worth putting other big matches or marquee matches on there, so there isn't just a one match card. But the key to it is then where you put those matches and how you take the crowd up and down and the type where you give them the breathers, yeah, you know, because the the American model of where you just you basically start with the, the the lowest ranked match as such and just gradually work your way up match by match so it builds doesn't for me doesn't work because you often get burnt out crowds if you can do it where you have you know a couple of big matches studded around the card with other lower matches comedy matches whatever it might be just to take things down and give people a breather then it then it works but but anyway we digress um gordon Soli is doing a piece of the camera previewing some matches in the background we see the iron Sheik walking to the ring brandishing his giant iranian flag fo- closely followed by mike rotunda so this is our second match they're introduced in the ring um Iron Sheik against Mike Rotunda. Yep, Sheiky baby. I you know, I forgot who's ever in WCW. Um, his opponent is a very bland-looking future IRS, Captain Mike Rotunda. Um, it did confuse me because I always thought his name was Mike Rotundo because I'm sure that's what I read it as in the and mags, but he's Rotunda. So I looked it up and it's basically Rotunda is his real name. Rotundo was his WWF name in the 80s when him and uh, Barry Windham were the US Express
1: yeah I won't even open up that can of worms that has to yeah. be one of the most confusing yet pedantic things in, in wrestling history <laughs> it's just yeah, absolute agony
0: I, yeah and of course uh, the US Express because they couldn't be the American Express you know that had been taken by some credit card company scumbags Yes, um, so Sheiky nails Rotunda from behind with his flag and is attacking him while Rotunda still has his jacket on. I don't know why, I just love, always love the visual of that, where they're fighting still in their entrance robes. Um, Sheik drops Rotunda with a loose-looking clothesline and poses over his fallen opponent. Um, Sheiky has got a tremendous gut on him. What a guy. Um, he's 48 years old by this point compared to the 32-year-old Rotunda. Um As soon as Rotunda gets on the offense, Sheiky scoots out of the ring. Um, One thing that did make me laugh was that on commentary, Ross refers to Sheik's attack with the flag as a terrorist attack, and I just thought that's something you probably couldn't get away with these days. Um, Sheik's offense mainly consists of clubbing forearms, throwing in a gut-wrench suplex for some variety. Uh, Rotunda lands a series of right hands which sends Sheik to the canvas. Rotunda gets a two-count after countering a vertical suplex with one of his own. Um, Sheik attempts a butterfly suplex, but Rotunda reverses it for a clumsy-looking backslide for a win out of nowhere in just under seven minutes. Match just didn't get out of first gear for me. It was really a nothing match.
1: Yeah, uh, although I, I, I'm loathe to lump the opening in with this. The opening had a little bit more to it. Because it was in the opening slot, um, this is the second singles match with no real emotional investment. And yeah, it's a very it's a very basic plodding match with the one extra thing about it, for, at least in my eyes, is that even though, even when Iron Sheik, and he generally does, has a pretty crappy match, everything my eyes that he does, and this was before he became a superstar with his internet rants, but he always had that little extra dimension of, of cartoonishness to his, you know, the way he'd throw attacks and the way he'd sell, and I always appreciated that. So there's a little bit more to watch there the way through. And I also appreciate the fact that he actually had the audacity to put Mike Rotunda in an abdominal stretch at one point, which only the most pathetic wrestling fan's going to pop for, but I did.
0: <laughs> I love Sheiky I have to say. I, I, to, I mean, I, I always remember, I'll tell this story because this is probably going to be the only time we ever get to talk about the Iron Sheik on uh, because WCW. I remember when he was Colonel Mustafa in the WWF and uh, they did a uh, house show in the early 90s in my hometown of Brighton and after the show, me and my friend that had gone to the show, we went round to the back where they, where the, the stage door was where they were coming out into a coach, and uh, Sheik is in, gets on the coach, and he's sitting by a window seat, and he's just mugging to all the fans and generally pissing around, and like he um, he takes his hat off, and obviously he's got a totally bald head, and he pulls a comb out of his pocket, and he's like, showing it to the fans like, well, what on earth am I going to brush with this? And then starts just elaborately over-the-top, combing his moustache in front of everyone it was just just playing to the crowd the whole time and uh, yeah became a big Sheik fan just for that little interaction he is a legend
1: and he will break your back in the camel clutch sorry
0: and of course he'll make you humble Liam
1: yes and other things related to sodomy that we won't go into here
0: we we won't go into no. no
1: but just look him up on YouTube
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone, someone did once create the Iron Sheik soundboard. Yes, still going. huge that's, fan. Uh, magnificent, yes. Okay, so we're back with Gordon Soley, who is interviewing Harley Race ahead of his forthcoming match with Tommy Rich. Um, Race acknowledges the fact that Rich beat him to become the NWA World Champion several years earlier. Um, Soley asks him for a prediction for Sting v. Flair. And um, Harley Race predicts Sting could beat Flair tonight if flair is not on his game so it's it's not really saying one thing or the other but i just think that's a great line and uh i definitely am going to nick that for commentary one day but we're not going to the uh race rich match yet we've got another match still to come which is uh, our third match dutch mantel the doug Furness. um the intro start with both men already in the ring and I don't know about you, but I just find it really odd, because to me, if they're both in the ring, it just seems like a normal TV match, as opposed to a special pay-per-view level match.
1: Yeah, well, I'll say one thing, it's worth remembering, that when, um, obviously we're still in a day where you'd get video releases of these pay-per-views, and they'd generally be trimmed down. Um, yeah, yeah. I believe for for the release of Bash ninety, they pretty much cut all of this. They, they they savaged the first four or five matches, and the opener was the U.S. Tag Title match. So oh. we'll get into very shortly. Which I'm sure you agree, when we get there, is a very good way to start the show and things pick up from there to a certain extent.
0: I, I guess just yeah, with with eleven matches to get through, it saves some some time. But all I was thinking is like you compare. This, yeah, you know, we we're talking about the presentation of, of things. You compare this to the presentation and the feel of SummerSlam 90, which took place the following month, and the way that they made that show feel huge and everyone had a big entrance and it was a lot more glitz and glamour. You know, this this just seemed like nowhere near as big a, big a deal when it should have been.
1: It really, I, I made the reference earlier to certain ways that boxing promoters would put together their cars and it really does have that legitimate feel where you've just got these dog shit matches but uh, but have been for whatever reason they've been sanctioned and they just happen and no one's there and people file in during the main fights or sometimes even the main event. It's got very much got that boxing feel to it for better or worse. It's it's a curious yeah. thing because yeah, when you're putting together an entertaining car obviously you want certain things to come across as realistic for the sake of suspending disbelief. But you also want the whole package to come across as appealing and eye-catching, so it's a, it's a it's a weird quandary the the early going that this show finds itself in, especially this match because this is probably the least interesting of all of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, if you go back to SummerSlam '90, you know, you had Hogan v. Earthquake and Warrior v. Rude, which were the marquee matches, but. Every match on that show had a story behind it. Every match on that show felt like it was there for a reason, whereas these matches all just seem to be, as you said, just thrown together.
1: Um, Dean, you do realise they threw out Tito Santana versus the fucking Warlord on that show, right? Or have you forgotten about that? Yeah. But yeah, I I know what you mean for the most part. Uh,
0: most of the matches (laughs) had a storyline behind them.
1: But I know what you mean for the most part. I always remember some Saturday kicked off with that shit hot um, angle slash squash with uh, the Rockers getting put out by Parent and Glory. Immediately put Parent Glory on the map, even though it didn't last long. Uh, obviously paid off an angle because Shawn Michaels was injured for a little bit. That was a hot start. You had some good matches you know, and Santana versus the Warlord. But yeah, I mean, it's it's weird to have such a slow start. But obviously, a lot of people watching on video never knew this until later on. But I'm curious. Maybe the idea is you just put some shit out there and you just want to get people who are attending in the door and buying food and drink at the merchandise stand. I don't know.
0: I, I suppose the other thing to consider is, you know, this time at 1990, you very rarely saw competitive matches. It was pretty much squash match after squash match. And maybe if you're lucky, you'd get one Match of this sort of level as your main event, you know, if you're lucky. So, I guess the novelty of seeing two name wrestlers facing each other was was a, an appeal in itself.
1: Yeah, but these aren't even squash matches. These aren't even nobody. These are people that they have on, their, even though they're not worth very much. Still got guys like, you know, Harley Race and that coming out. uh You know, Brian Pillman. They've got. They've at this point. They've got a lot of hope for Doug Furness, but it turns out he's just not really a singles guy. Uh, and they're having matches not against jobbers, but against other guys. And for the most part, yeah. they're they're just really forgettable matches. Or yes, you, you should have trimmed like at least a third off all of them in in match length.
0: Yes. Yeah. Definitely. So I mean, du- du- Dutch Mantel. Did Dutch Mantel ever look young? I mean, he's he's forty one here. He looks a hell of a lot older, and um, he is the hairiest wrestler alive i think um other than maybe the <clears throat> legendary british star the little prince if you've uh, ever seen him uh his uh, if you haven't look him up um don't don't like look his matches up just look a picture of him up. You, you don't <laughs> watch his matches trust me uh he is legendary in british circles for um all the wrong reasons. Uh if you basically if you could get a good match out of the Little Prince, you you knew you were you were doing all right. Um his opponent is billed as the world's strongest man, Doug Furnas. Now I got curious at this and I thought, really? So I looked him up. He's never competed in strongman events but he was a world record holder in powerlifting. Yes. Um And as you alluded to earlier, Liam, he went on to have a hugely successful career in Japan as a tag team wrestler. Um, He looks absolutely huge here. In fact, these two could not look any different if they tried. Um, Furnas shows great leaping ability, a pair of leapfrogs. He presses, um, press slams mantel over his head. This has got a similar dynamic to the opener with the wily veteran trying to slow down the match and make the babyface lose his temper. Um, Furnas hits a great looking high angle drop kick where he virtually does a head height standing somersault um it's one of his trademarks and one of the best drop kicks in the business um mantel goes for a pinfall attempt uh, furnace kick furnace kicks out and it actually sends mantel flying across the ring to demonstrate his strength uh, mantel continues to slow things down and cheats try and win um, another huge kick out from Furnas sends mantel flying landing on top of the referee mantel is still working on furnace's left arm and this really is quite a dull match um, the match breaks down a little bit um, before furnace wins with a snap belly to belly suplex um, this one went Way too long. um, it was eleven minutes, eighteen seconds to be precise. should have been much much quicker and much more of a showcase for Doug
1: Furness. Oh, you're telling me. um so you can you know you combine how this match was poorly structured with what the commentary team were getting across as it was happening. And one thing's obvious they they want to establish that Doug Furness is he's big, he's strong, he's exciting, he can do really cool moves you can do that in two minutes yep what the fuck it's just, they've 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 exposed if they, if they do have any plans for him they've exposed him right out of the gate because this was not interesting there were a couple of things that stand out but otherwise it's like oh yeah this is a crap match but he kind of looks good so that, that quest for a certain degree of realism if that's what they're going for has knocked him on the head and Doug Ferns is one of them guys where yeah if he was on the other side of the fence, at this point in the timeline, and he was in a f- nothing match on the SummerSlam 90 undercard. He'd have been out there for two minutes 30 seconds, and he'd have been a superstar in the making. And who knows yeah. whether or not that would have sustained or what. He would have. You know, I don't think he would have been quite as bad as some of the the, the smoke and mirrors jobs. You know, he's never terrible, but yeah, he, he couldn't really find his way in singles. And it might not have worked out regardless of where he was, but he'd have had a much better shot if he weren't being exposed like this because for some reason we have to have a a five-match start of of boring but realistic-looking fights as if it's any old shitty boxing undercard.
0: So uh, moving on, Jim Cornette cuts a promo with Gordon Soley talking about the Southern Boys who've got a United States tag team title match with the Midnight Express later on. Cornette has to keep it short, but it's his usual intense self. Um, and then we get on to the Harley Race Tommy Rich match, a match number four. Um, in the ring intros yet again, Capetta says this is a match between two former NWA world champions. Um the lengths of their time with the belt does vary quite a bit, but they are both former NWA world champions and a number of reigns um, and the number of reigns indeed. Yes. Um, Race is still wearing his old purple WWF trunks with a crown on the back. Um, I think Jim Ross does make reference to it and speculates if he's a fan of the Sacramento Kings at one point. Um, uh, but his hair is now back to its natural brown colour. Um, it's all action to start with, but um, poor Harley looks like he's doing everything in slow motion. He's 47 by this point, and he'd only carry on wrestling for another few months, about nine months or so. Um, race nails Rich with a pile driver, which Rich sells in a way that I've, I've never seen anyone sell before. I don't know if I like it or not. He springs back to his feet, and then stumbles through the ropes and onto the ramp. Um, race follows him outside, lands a suplex on the ramp, and um, Gotta say there've been you know, no rest holds in this once whatsoever. Race then gets clotheslined over the top rope, taking one of his trademark harley race bumps. Rich then slams him on the floor, suplexes him back into the ring. um The crowd, though, despite the action, the crowd are dead for this one. um With Rich's back to the ropes, Rich goes for a slam, but Race's body weight sends them both over the top to the floor. uh Rich climbs to the top ropes. They both get in the ring, hits a top rope cross body block but Race rolls through and gets the clean pin in six and a half minutes.
1: See, now, this, this is where I really start to wonder what they're aiming for here because of the this rigid series of single matches we've had, as, as maybe the opener, which we gave a bit of credit for for what it had about it earlier, um, this match, you know, they've got the billing with the, world, the former NWA World Champions, two more recognizable guys on name value you know if you did like an aggregate name value it's probably the highest so far especially with Harley racing there for crying out loud. and the work rate is a little higher as well you know it weren't much of a match to look at but as you said they're always doing something always working few good bumps this that, and the other uh and as you said even though it had so much more going for it as, as an actual reason to happen and a, and a billing and name value and work rate the crowd still don't give a shit, which makes you wonder, right, if if, if they are anticipating that everyone who's bought a ticket for this is, is mostly in the one-match show um, frame of mind surely they've got enough of a roster surely they can go maybe a little bit lighter with some of these matches rather than going serious you just try and get a bit of light entertainment out there maybe a comedy match because at least then the crowd will be receptive to it even if they don't care so it's weird that they've just run through this procession of crap and yeah I wish I was one of these guys who watched it for the first time on the, on the video release as a result, but at least race one, and you say about how he he only wrestled for a few months after this, yeah, at least he used this uh, time in WCW to segue into what we remember him best for, which is coming out and taking bumps, even if he was a manager of someone in the match or not, it seemed. His contractual (laughs) bumps.
0: Contractual obligated bumping, and he loved it. So, uh, next up, we have uh, Gordon Sony, we're back to him, uh, and he's now with, and it's strange to refer to them in these names, but he's with Paul Lee Dangerously and Mean Mark Callus um, in his last ever WWE pay-per-view appearance before going to the WWF a few months later as the Undertaker. Um, Callus rips a Lex Luger t-shirt in half while Dangerously rants, um, and he'll be challenging Lex Luger. For the US title later on.
1: Oh man, to think if, he, if he'd have just, if me and Mark had turned around right there and then, given Paulie Dangerously a heart punch, maybe the Undertaker streak would still be alive. <laughs> what, one 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 thing I did notice about this, I really appreciated. Um, if you think about it, all right, we had a Jim Cornette interview one match before this, and Paulie Dangerously is giving a promo for his guy now. Um, it was very much a classic Cornet promo in a lot of ways, but I actually thought he was quite in. other ways, he was quite reserved. He wasn't as abrasive as he can be sometimes, especially when he's uh you know when he, when he's cutting a promo against some of the Midnight Express's most famous enemies. He usually gets really uh, abrasive, down and dirty with it. In this instance, he he was quite eloquent. He was quite reserved. He was a little bit respectful. He went as just a slightly altered approach to his. to to probably his optimum promo style even though his his delivery was machine gun as always um and then you have paulie danger come out and he's you know he's obnoxious he's foul-mouthed and he's much more in your face with style which got me to thinking uh, i really hope you have to imagine it probably is the case with two guys as good as these are you can just imagine the chat they had before the show about how they were going to cut promos for their guys, and not tread on each other's toes, and they've managed to just go with such a great contrast to how they delivered. Because let's face it, if they wanted to, each man could give a, a five-star promo that sounded, that, and the two would sound so alike to each other if they wanted them to. But I really appreciate the contrast between them here. Maybe I'm the only person who noticed that. But. You're a manager, no you me, give mate. promos, back me up here. Yeah.
0: No, no, definitely. I mean, I, I, I'd see I totally see where you're coming from. They are, you know, the the promo style. There are similarities, but there are also great differences. I mean, what I would say is, I would be surprised if they uh, had a long conversation before the show because they famously legit don't like each other one little bit. They do not see eye to eye. It's one of those, it's one of those strange things that, where two people are so similar to one another in so many ways that they just don't get on because they're too alike. Um, but, um, yeah, they could have been told, you know, they, they could have been told by the, by the booker, but I, I just think, um, it could easily be, you know, you just look at what the first guy's done and make sure you do something differently or, or what, but no, totally. Yeah. They are, they're both intense promos, but they're both, they're, they're both different. They do that. Yeah. Cornet is a little bit more comedic in his approach to, 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 probably dangerously, but yeah, they serve the same purpose in different ways, definitely.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's worth saying, you know, Jim Cornette's a man for 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 how nutcasey he goes and how over the top he goes when he does dislike someone. This is a guy who did spend several years trying to work with Vince Russo. So when it comes to putting together good wrestling, it seems like he really is able to at least find the, the ability to attempt. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the brainstorming wasn't off the table, even if he disliked pretty much everyone he ever worked with. <laughs>
0: Not everyone, just, just you know, most people.
1: But speaking of Cornette, this is where the show starts getting a bit good, isn't it?
0: Absolutely, yes. This here we is, go. Uh, business starts to pick up at this point. Video release so, opener. Um,
1: Forget everything you've heard. The podcast starts here. I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, so we are now on to match number five. It is for the NWA United States Tag Team Championship. It's the Southern Boys challenging the Midnight Express. And I say curses... To the WWE Network for dubbing over the Midnight Express's awesome entrance music. Um, the Southern Boys are Steve Armstrong and Tracy Smothers in their first ever pay-per-view appearance. They later change their name to The Young Pistols, I think, the following year. They start off hot, all four men are brawling. This whole this whole thing is... is uh, such a big sign to me of, of wrestling in a completely different era the fact you know, as we said we had a lack of entrances for the undercard but here we've got two sets of tag team titles we've got managers being used frequently this is the end of a previous era still still going on here um apart from the opener this is the first match that the crowd really come alive for um the challenges are dominating the champions early on the highlight being Smothers Nailing Eaton with a beautiful super kit or Savate Kick as it's called here by Jim Ross. Um, You just don't hear that name used anymore. Um, We then come to a martial arts showdown between Smothers and Stan Lane. Um, Lane gets the first blow-in. The crowd seems to be siding with the Midnights, actually. Um, both of the champions get laid out by Smothers, and they sell as Cornette throws a fit at ringside. This is classic Midnight Express that only Cornette and the Midnights can do. Um, they then distract the ref and take over on Smothers, but Armstrong intervenes with an awesome-looking top rope cross body block, and the Midnights once again scatter to the floor with a desperate Cornette, almost in tears, as another plan fails to come to fruition. Um, A little later on, a blind tag allows Lane to come in and throw Smothers over the top rope while Cornette distracts the ref. So I guess this is plan C. Um, Cornette smacks him in the jaw with his tennis racket. The Midnight's then double-team Smothers, and they're taking over on him. Um, Smothers is far away from his corner. Um, Eaton lands his always amazing-looking Alabama jam top rope leg drop, but he's too dazed to make the pin attempt. Cornette guides him over to the corner. He tags in Lane. the Midnight's offense is still getting cheered. Smothers has been in this match for about 10 minutes on his own now. Um, Smothers finally makes the hot tag to Armstrong, who takes over on both opponents. Um, Smothers holds Lane up, a bit like a heart attack close line position, while Armstrong hits the top rope drop kick. That's their finishing move. But in the corner of the screen, by the other corner, you can see Cornet handing something to Bobby Eaton. Um, the ref is busy trying to get the illegal men out of the ring, he doesn't count the pin for ages, meaning that Lane kicks out on one, which is a really nice little touch, rather than teasing the one, two, three the fact he kicks out so early because the ref's taken so long to get to the count I really like that Um, Eaton pushes Armstrong off the top rope, Lane slams him, Hells Eaton off the top in the rocket launcher Lane stops Smothers from making the save, but Armstrong kicks out at two, which is a great force finish. The crowd are amazed at it. They didn't think that would be anything other than the finish. Um, Armstrong and Smothers switch places. Smothers catches Eaton for another false finish. The crowd are absolutely eating this up at this point. Um, Eaton whips Smothers into the ropes where Lane kicks him in the back of the head. Eaton just about holds a wriggling Smothers in a small package for the pinfall to retain the titles. Just... To me, an absolutely fantastic match. Basically a manual of how to put together a baby faces v heels tag team match.
1: Not just that, but exactly how you establish a, a, a new entity, a singles or tag, you set up a new entity, they, they lost the fucking match. And they're they're established right there, as you said, you know, because because of how well established the Midnight Express are, they generally would get a lot of uh, cheers from certain sections and, and sometimes when they, were play- when they were facing off against teams such as the dynamic dudes they'd get a lot more than just a few cheers but yeah. despite all of that they have pretty much established another team right there it, they, they were the tag team, Ric Flair. Ric Flair did this all the time. He would you know, win more often than not because he'd carry the belt for so long in the 80s and early 90s, and yet he would make people think that his opponent was a threat, was a plough, was someone worth watching. So, yeah, it was great yeah. to watch. And, yeah, if you're watching the video release of this, it's a great start to the show. For, forget all that shit we had to endure on the network.
0: Yeah, bear in mind that comparing when we talk about some of the people Ric Flair had to work with in local territories and abroad and stuff, you know, the, the, the Southern boys, the young pistols were fantastic in their own right. Um, but uh, yeah, the Midnight Express are the established team and they make, they make their new opponents look a million dollars. Yeah. Just fantastic. You know, if just go, go and what this is, it's 20 minutes of your life that you will, be very glad you spent watching this go go back on the network or if it's on I don't know if it's on YouTube as well but go and watch the midnight Express with the southern boys from from bash 90 it is absolutely tremendous
1: well I have to say I did love the fact that um you said they the, they're the southern boys here they'd get renamed the young pistols soon enough and yet despite this uh the commentary team are almost determined to get them over as being titled the wild-eyed southern boys. Yes. And so is it, is it the Wild Eye Southern Boys? Is it just the Southern Boys? Oh, well, fuck it, Young Crystals.
0: Maybe the Southern Boys sounded a bit too kind of backward, and you know, trying if you're trying to expand a bit more nationally, maybe you want to, you know, you want a less regional name. I don't know.
1: Yes, yeah, weird because if you have a specific team who are called the Southern Boys, you're not really saying, "Oh, look, we're all." Southern, are you? You're, you're you're establishing that is their gimmick, but I've never got answer. And there's always a case in WWE where they'd be reluctant to play up the the southern element unless it was completely over the top, and you had fucking hillbilly Jim and that, uh, for fear of them being looked at as all like that. Even though you know you, you can't get a more diverse set of characters in nineteen eighties WWF. If you had, <laughs> yeah. If you had a tag team there like the Southern Boys, why the fuck would people think that's the best reflection on what you've got when you've got all these steroid freaks, the other side of them?
0: Indeed. Gordon Soly is now with the Freebirds, who have a very different look to usual, with uh, lots of glitter and sequins dungarees and appear to be off their tits. Um, no change there. Michael Hayes tells their opponents, the Steiners, that there's two things they can do about it, nothing unlike it. So that's where Alex Shane got it from. We now come on to match number six, one of the greatest squash matches ever seen, or one of the greatest high-profile squash matches ever seen. It is time for Big Van Vader's WCW debut. I believe we talked about this in our tribute to Vader. Um, He comes out with his unique headpiece, which shoots out steam, um, if you actually look closely, you can see the guy who holds the remote control to spew the steam quickly get out of camera shot by the ramp. Um, just look for a bloke who looks like a cross between Gordon Ramsay and Peter Stringfellow, basically. Oh, um,
1: there's a mental image I do not
0: want. <laughs> um, Vader clubs Zenk with his trademark forearms, followed by an avalanche and a vicious clothesline. He catches Zenk's crossbody attempt and turns it into a press slam. A vertical suplex, another big clothesline, and a huge leaping splash gets the three count for Vader in just two minutes, and in that short space of time, he's won that crowd over. Um, this is exactly what Doug Furnas should have had, basically.
1: Exactly. A two minutes wash. Yeah.
0: Um, but I mean, my description of that match doesn't do it justice. It's just uh, the the impacts of this match as a debut.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit after the main event, but it's such a crying shame that politics meant that they couldn't really do much with big fan Vader for the first two, well, almost first two years of his time as a WCW wrestler because he is the sort of foil that Sting needed straight after the Flair match. And yeah, at the time, it just—it was a no-no that he was going to do the job anywhere. So he was—he was a part-timer. He was swinging back. For, I think we touched upon this in the Vader tribute episode. But yeah, they couldn't really use him with maximum control until early 92 i believe
0: yeah i mean they had um he had a bit of a feud in wcw with stan hansen where every match was a double dq because obviously the politics of an all japan guy against a new japan guy and um yeah it was as you say 92 where he signed full time that they could then start working
1: with him yeah, and he, he wasn't like someone else's world champion, which stopped them from being able to job him. Because obviously, like the the end game, if they're going to pair him with Sting right off the bat, the end game is they need someone to eventually put Sting over, even if it takes like a couple of rematches and that. Uh, and that yeah. weren't even on the table for it, which is a shame because you think of how awesome Sting Vader was when we got it and right when sting was newly minted and right when vader just had that pop you know it's not that the either man was lacking as 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 far as their ring work or their characters was concerned when they did tear the house down in 92 93 94 whenever they got put in the ring together uh yeah uh, that possibly could have been the thing that would have given sting a serious chance of being an actual draw, rather than just being a, you know, a very good, recognisable guy.
0: Yeah, and then obviously it was, it was two years later at the Bash '92 that Vader won his first WCW World title as well.
1: Yes. And Sting always what you know, he he was Mr. WCW's one of their top guys, but one of their biggest disappointments, especially straight after he won this title in the main event. Sorry if I'm spoiling that for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> was that he he didn't he didn't move the needle significantly uh at the box office. Which which is what you want. But uh, sometimes you 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 don't see the forest for the trees and you Because someone hasn't performed with flying colours financially, you you fail to see that they're still a very strong asset and he proved that no matter how much he got downplayed and minimised on and off over the years, he he always proved himself to be that evergreen face of WCW and yeah, he was really lacking a big fan Vader right from the gate.
0: Okay, so after um, a generic heel promo from the Horsemen minus Flair, it's time for another tag match. This is um, no titles at stake. This is just a, a kind of a rankings match, I guess. So the Fabulous Freebirds v. The Steiner Brothers. Um, you know this is going to be good. Um so the Freebirds jump the Steiners at the start and take over on Scott, who's the, the vulnerable younger brother. And it's so strange watching him there because he's barely recognizable as the same person as you know Big Papa Pump later on. Um, the Steiners soon even up the numbers. Um, this, Jim Ross tells us, is a match of former World Tag Team Champions, um, that the Steiners had actually beaten the Freebirds to win the tag belts before they lost them to the current champion's doom. Um, the Steins control the opening few minutes using their power. Ross notes how Hayes is now playing to the crowd to kill the Steins' momentum. Um, Scott hits a Tiger driver before it was known as that in America on Hayes and his patented tilt-a-whirl slam, which looks horribly clumsy in this instance, on Garvin as the crowd roar their approval. Um, Rick then gets in the ring to face off with Michael Hayes, um, while the crowd very audibly chant, Michael is a bitch. Um... The Freebirds are being dominated until Hayes knocks Rick out of the ring with a left hand and Garvin clotheslines him on the outside. And from that point on, the Freebirds take over on Rick um they've slowed the pace right down which seems to be a common tactic and this evening for the heels they dominate themselves for several minutes till garvin goes up top gets caught coming down by rick rick then goes to the top himself and lands a really awkward sort of face bustery bulldog thing he tags in scott who press slams Hayes into garvin scott hits his frankensteiner which at this time was like the innovative move, you know, is the maneuver of the year is the hot new thing um basically it's a hurricane um he hits on on Hayes but uh, Garvin nails him with a DDT Rick hits a belly-to-belly suplex while the ref's putting Garvin back on his tag rope and places Scott on top of him the ref count turns around and counts the pinfall victory for the Steiners um solid enough match not a patch on the midnight to be Southern boys but then again what is um and the other thing I'm thinking at this point is does the face win telegraph the result of the world tag team title match later
1: maybe but uh, to, you know the way things went was a little bit different because they had just dropped the belts to them. but for me this was very much just a this was a way of rehabbing the Steiners on the on the main stage uh yeah. to to give them a and you know they've got name value opponents but easily throw you know the free birds at a point where any any losses are gonna damage their stock because they're just there they'll they'll draw heat. No matter what they do and just to make sure you know they'll they'll dress up in glitter and, and do things like that to try and provoke a homophobic reaction that you just can't try and do in this day and age. just us fucking sam adonis yes but that's basically what they're going for hence you hear the michael's a bitch chance and things like that with the glitter and that they know exactly what they're doing it's it's almost it's, it's very much exotic adrian street rico in the early 2000s so they always get that heat it's easy to just have them drop to the to the steiners and it's it's, as you said it's it's always going to be a fun match it was never going to touch the other tag match but funny mention that and the the titles on the line that the steiners would be united states tag champs not long after this and you will remember the match where they defended those belts at halloween havoc 90 against the nasty boys so, a good year for tag team wrestling in this instance. You know, they're rolling with Doom, rightfully so, because Doom are absolutely in their prime at this point. We'll, we'll get more on that later. But this match was there. It was where it was, not in a bad way. But one thing I will give a huge compliment to is I was a huge fan of uh, yeah, the finish. Yeah, the Frankenstein is normally death. It's the end. It, was, well, it wasn't not the end. But I loved the little fake out where, you know... Garvin comes in and, and and does it. And you see it sometimes, you know, where a guy hits a finisher, but then the illegal man sneaks in, does a finisher, and that's it. But then you have the second illegal man, Rick Stein, coming with a belly-to-belly. So I love that little double finish. Sometimes you see, you know, when there's a small package, and the, the two members of the tag match that are not currently wrapped up in a small package are having a tug of war, pushing the small package over so like that they're it, yeah. little things like, and this was like a high impact version of that so you get three, three big moves where they're just trading the advantage for the finish uh, I, I loved the thing I really did and it was a good match but yeah it it, it, it was there for placeholder reasons and it's funny how that, that had placeholder purposes that the the audience watching on pay-per-view or video or even the live crowd could appreciate other than the purposes whatever the fuck they are of those first few singles matches sorry to bring that up again <laughs> yes
0: we then uh, we then have uh, it's another tag match it's a six-man tag it is the dudes with attitudes against the horsemen um so this is elegante junkyard dog and paul orndorff against arnance and barry windham and sid vicious my first question is who the fuck thought that dudes with attitude was a good name for a babyface group i mean did they not learn anything from the dynamic dudes and 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 then who thought that the junkyard dog and paul orndorff looked like dudes let alone a seven foot seven argentinian basketball player
1: yeah it's just a it's a huge example of their marketing desperation and i suppose i touched upon it in a way indirectly with talking about sting who he was a disappointment at the box office but clearly in the, in the long run he was always going to be a, a good player and a big asset to wcw but the the so much importance was placed on whether or not he suddenly hulk hogan and and brought them in huge money and it's funny because this this pay per view did a very good gate and did very well in a lot of other ways and yet you know, like most years in the uh, until uh, the mid 90s, and Hogan and Bischoff turned things around. This was a money losing year for WCW. It shows they were just desperate to find that big thing that t- that won the jackpot because they were still hemorrhaging money because WCW. And to go off my side rant. They, we're in 1990, and there's this. You, you'll remember a bit more than me because you're slightly older than me. Sorry to bring that up. Um, Cheers for that. You're welcome, buddy. But because you are slightly older than me, you'll remember <laughs> that in the yeah. in in the very late 80s and very early 90s, there was this obsession with hip and rad, and oh it's just it was cringe worthy then, and it, it is even more so now. But things like Dudes with without you, that was the way that narrow-minded people really thought things became more marketable. So that's what we got here. Apparently, the the, the champion elect has to have an entourage of, of people he really has very little in common with. Outside of the Steiners, who are technically part of this group, obviously in a different match on the night, uh, you know, Sting and the Steiners end up having a very good lineage together, and and they looked right as a as a as a babyface friendship and obviously you had Lex Luger as well at this time, who was babyface for, 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 at least for now, but these guys in this match, and yeah, let's get to the meat of the matter, because if you listen to the commentary, and the obsession of the commentary, and the way this match is, there is one end game, and one end game alone to this undercard match, and that is to make El Gigante look like a huge spectacle, a huge draw, a top guy, uh, and to, even the, the likes of Dave Meltzer at the time were convinced that he was going to make the company a lot of money once he had picked up the basics of wrestling, which, as we know now, he never fucking did. But they, no. even though he was he was blatantly nowhere near ready for it at this point, the the goal of this match was to make him look shit hot. Here, uh, case in point, he. Pretty much doesn't get involved in any way other than to throw a glance or to lunge towards a hill within the vicinity, and they would act like they've just seen the boogeyman. They would cower in fear. It was, it was comical to watch, to be honest. And he did fuck all.
0: I mean, yeah, he yeah, and and I mean, bear in mind he'd been training for a year at this point, a year, and. I mean, he's he's it's his first pay-per-view match. Um, he's well protected. It's a six-man tag. He's surrounded by veterans who can make people look good, and Sid. Um, so they've put him in as, as as safe an environment as they can, um, and they've had him do virtually nothing in the match. I mean, it
1: shows how little faith they had in him at all. Yeah.
0: I think yeah, was, yeah they they thought that this could be like the next Andre the Giant or something you know but um, but the most I mean,
1: hilarious point of this is that yeah all right you you realise that someone's nowhere near ready they're way behind on things and you think right well we're gonna have to regroup we're gonna have to call this off and maybe come back when he's a little more ready maybe step up the training maybe even look elsewhere if we have to no instead they're going ahead of it in in a very notable given that it's the entourages of the, the two men in the main event. This is a this is a marquee part of the undercard, and they're Ooh. showcasing him to be the star of the match without actually doing anything. So they're hell bent on making him a star, even though they, they 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 must at this point know that even if it catches on, and he's getting good reactions. You know, he he's a massive fella. Live crowd's gonna really pick up on that, and they're, 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 the the are selling it like it's a big thing. So we're gonna get to this point. That he's he's gonna get exposed, yeah. And we do several times because people just have to go back to big dudes. Yeah,
0: this is this is where someone like Paul Heyman would come into his own because you know this was a guy who was probably the best in the business at hiding people's weaknesses and exposing their strengths. But I think even he might
1: struggle with with yeah. With what this the fair. hell would he? Uh, this yeah. is a man who got higher over over and he'd still struggle with El Gigante I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I actually did see him live on one occasion when he was Giant Gonzalez in the WWF. He had uh, again back in my hometown of Brighton at the Brighton Center. Him, The Undertaker had a had a match. What what always sticks in my mind is like the looks on the faces of the security guys who worked yeah you know, who worked at the venue who obviously weren't wrestling fans and they, you know that they, they were sort of smiling at each other with that yeah this is all load of rubbish isn't it and then giant gonzalez comes out and their their faces just drop because it's like they have obviously as as all of us they've never seen a man that big in all their life um i was actually front row for that show um and i stood right next to him and i'm five foot nine and i came up to his elbow i would say if you, he's the he's the same height approximately as a bus shelter I would say if you say you walk down the street stand look at a bus shelter and then imagine a man being that at all that was elegante but the problem was he just didn't get it he didn't get what wrestling was about I think
1: he had no athletic prowess because he he was a basketball washout as well he just wasn't cut out he kept himself in good shape obviously hoping that good money would come for an athletic uh, entity but he just didn't have any skill, even to do a staged thing. Um, he actually did a, a few bits of acting. He was on a Baywatch once or twice. Yeah. Uh, he generally well liked, wasn't he? So maybe that was with his size. You want to take advantage of the of the whole sideshow thing. Maybe acting was the way forward. But I don't yeah. think he did agree. He did a few bits. But he didn't do a great deal.
0: No, and he he did a bit in New Japan because again, you know, the whole sort of freak show value as such. Um, because you know, this is one thing Jim Ross mentions in commentary, you know, you've got to see this guy live to comprehend how how big he was. It was like their their touring attraction. But he always um,
1: loved that line, didn't he?
0: Yes, he did indeed, indeed. So, I mean, with, with this match, despite being a heel, Sid's been widely cheered by the crowd. Um, Orndorf starts out and is comfortable with Arn Anson and, and Winder, but is struggling with the much larger Sid. Elegante gets in the ring, the heels scatter. Um, and I I have got to say Arn Anderson's facials and the selling of the fear he has of this giant is absolutely phenomenal here um, jyd comes in he's mostly doing headbutts he no sells the horseman's offense tags out to Orndorf. um elegante still hasn't got legally involved in the match yet um, the horseman throw jyd over the top rope which results in disqualification elegante gets in the ring and as you kind of mentioned earlier he literally just shoves all three men who bump for him and flee the ring um, the crowd boo this week, sort of non-finish. It's nine minutes long, basically. Um, and the fact that, you know, the, the main attraction of this, the debut of Elegant, was a total non-event because he didn't get involved in the match at all.
1: It's just, it's, as I say, it's absolutely baffling that they doubled down on him despite knowing how how much he was struggling to, to come along to where he'd need to be to actually make the money. So, uh, but just, the, the, the worst thing is is. To think that how many times you know, WCW repeated this mistake several times before he left, and then WWE really tried to. And you, it, I get the whole, the, the, as you said, the, the way people react live, the the, the way commentators can really put it over. But there's nothing to say, There's nothing to say. And people were determined to make it work, and no one would see the the truth that. No, just being big isn't enough
0: no he did despite being seven foot seven he didn't have any presence That was, I, I, he didn't he wasn't able to convey a character to a to to a crowd or an audience on tv or live unfortunately he just wasn't you know as you said from all accounts a lovely man and but, but it just wasn't cut out for for wrestling really hmm. Anyway, we should move on to match number nine. It's the NWA United States title as Mean Mark Callis challenges the champion Lex Luger. And it is so strange to see Mark Calloway as anything other than the Undertaker being really such an is. iconic figure. Yeah. Um he really doesn't show much charisma or personality here, I guess being hence being put with Paul E. But I suppose the Undertaker character took a while to, to get to get going as far as the the, the the charisma and the personality and the character goes well but, um, it, it was it was
1: perfect that. because you know he basically played especially early on he played a zombie he could yeah. get away with no selling and deadpanning and once he found his feet he added those little wrinkles and they turn you know you notice as soon as he got comfortable in the role they turned in baby face there's a fucking reason for that he was getting cheers as yeah. early as when he beat Hulk Hogan for the title, maybe a bit sooner, because yes. he was just so cool and he was impervious to pain, and these things react. But as soon as he found his feet, they turned him babyface because he was ready for it, and that's telling. And you, you see it here, there's, as you said, it's why he's got a manager, it's why he's in a, a, a US heavyweight match against a, a champion they showcase showcasing, because he's, he's a warm body.
0: Mm. Um, there's a huge pop for Luger. Despite both men being powerhouses, this match starts off with wrestling holds on a vertical base. After about five less-than-inspiring minutes of this, the pace picks up. Mean Mark, as they call him, does an impressive-looking leapfrog. He screws up a clothesline attempt, then lands a big boot on Luger. Um, Mark's now landing punches on Luger, who's selling them big. He takes Luger down to the canvas. He executes a Fujiwara armbar, gets back up and still holding onto uh, Luger's arm. He executes what we now know as old school the rope walk um, arm slam. Um, Luger falls out of the ring. He's beaten up um, around the ring by the challenger. Mean Mark executes a vertical suplex, which Luger just decides to not sell. Um, He then goes on the offence. It's sort of like hulking up without any of the drama or theatrics. He lands a pair of big clotheslines and hoists him up into the torture rack, but Mark's leg hits the ref and knocks him down. Paulie takes his opportunity to jump into the ring and clobber Luger with his mobile phone. Now, bear in mind, kids, that mobile phones were very rare in 1990 and were the size of a brick. Paulie is desperately trying to revive the referee, but by the time he comes around to make a count, Luger kicks out at two and a half. Um, Luger blocks, Mean Mark's trademark heart punch with a big boot, punches Paulie off the apron, and kicks a dodgy hits a dodgy looking clothesline for an equally dodgy, very fast three count to retain his title. Um, not a great match. Few miscommunications between the two, and a, a weak finish again.
1: Yeah, this was a this was a weird match. It wasn't terrible by any means, and you get the impression that. But like, hypothetically because obviously one of these things is, is not as good as the other but if he did hypothetically stay in WCW you get the impression that he and Lex could have been having very good matches like within six months if I had a programme yeah. obviously the way things worked out was much for the better for wrestling fans but it's yeah. it's a, it's a, my point is it's a, it's a pairing where a bit more time working together maybe they'd have clicked a bit more but it's weird with with a slow start and Luger's convenience selling, and uh, it's just so many things to take even a casual fan just straight out of it and wonder why this match is happening. Because it's kind of just a routine defense anyway. Paulie does a promo, does his best to to put the guy over, but he's he's the warm body of the month for the defending champion. This is Lex Luger at this point, so for, you know he's over a year into this reign, I think. He definitely did hold it for a total of well over a year, didn't he? Oh yeah, he uh, was,
0: yeah, he was like the perennial US champion for a bit, but he never, he just never looked comfortable as a babyface. Um, he never really seemed to interact with the fans.
1: Yeah, and he was pretty much turned babyface for the sole purpose of killing time while Sting was injured, because he was a, he was a heel. The injury happened, and they panicked and did a couple of pay per view cards with Luger. Taking Sting's side, even though beating the crap out of him in 1989. Um, so yeah, you know, I see we come from there. But he got he got a couple of opponents down. You know, the chemistry with Hansen I always thought was good. And, but yeah, it was, a, it was just a very weird. Not nothing about it was terrible. We cover so many things in this show that are terrible, and we have a good old laugh about it. But I feel awkward covering something like this where it's it's just fucking weird. <laughs> it's <laughs> just it's just everything's awkward and ill-fitting and and clunky and hit and miss and hot and cold. It's just one knows They're nowhere near as fun as the abjectly awful things.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, we then go to a pre-recorded interview backstage with Sting. It's brief, but it's good. Um, the stipulations for this is it's no DQ and the dudes with attitudes around the ring. Sting says if he loses, he'll have no excuse. But before that, we have the World Tag Team titles. The Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson challenging Doom with Teddy Long. This will be a clash of styles for sure, but the Rock and Roll Express should, as always, be able to sell their bollocks off. Um, it's power against speed. Doom are largely in control and the crowd are quiet. I don't think anyone really believes that the Rock and Rolls have a chance of winning the belts. Um, Morton tags in and fares better than Gibson, getting a couple of near falls until... Simmons nails him from behind with a clothesline, which Morton sells like he's dead. Um, we're now in the familiar situation in Rock and Roll Express matches where Ricky Morton is selling. Um, Doom making swift tags in and out, keeping them fresh. Reed throws Morton over the top rope just as the ref turns around so the ref has to turn back very quickly to pretend he didn't see it. Um, finally, Morton makes the hot tag, throwing right hands and drop kicks. Teddy Long gets brought into the ring. Gibson gets distracted in beating Teddy Long up. Reed climbs to the top rope, hits Gibson with the top rope shoulder block for the pin to retain the titles. Nothing special. Didn't really hold my attention. Result was kind of obvious to start with. Anyway, I don't know. What did you think of this?
1: It, it was a bit shitty in some ways. It, it's, it's a weird one in that for me, there was definitely a, a you know a director or a producer who's made the call. To make sure these guys don't get out of first gear. Because anytime you got some crisp offense from the champions, and as I said, they're they're in their peak at this point. They, they were looking really good. They were with the right opponents, they were moving really good. You'd think theoretically the rock and rolls would be those good opponents because they sell great, they're good, sympathetic baby faces. Any time there was some good offense from the champs or some great selling, Uh, things just suddenly slowed down into a chin lock or whatever. There was definitely a call, I think, just to make sure this was a match that happened, which is a shame. I would wager that if if the time machine we spoke of earlier on was a real one and we went back and managed to make another series of these matches happen, that these two teams could definitely have a lot better. They've got the right dynamic. Uh, they're in the right time frame to be producing good matches but we we seemingly had our quota of one good tag match on the card, and we yeah. got we got two you know i, I don't think either of them were bad, but they just they were just there they were they existed for yeah. reasons more than to put on a good show and that's where we're getting back into you know it's it's it they, they you know putting this card together they have They've given the midnights and the southern boys a green light to go balls to the wall, and everyone else is there just to hit a few notes and then go. Yeah. And and though you know some notes were hit though the Pillmans, the this match to a very small extent the you know, Luca's out there and they will you know, and Luca's a star and he got pops, El Gigante, they wanna get him over. For things like that are there, but this is definitely I think I think Bob Aram would be be very proud of this undercard. Nobody gives a fuck about the undercard. It's a shame. I'll I'll give a (laughs) fuck about the undercard.
0: yeah. Yeah, the thing the thing for me as well is that this match lasts virtually the same amount of time as the main event. And you know, like we said about Doug Ferdas and, and Dutch Mantell, you could have shaved five minutes or so off of this and put it on the main event or given a bit of hype to the main event. But but hey, it is time for our main event. It is um, Sting and Ric Flair. We have a pre-recorded interview in an empty arena with Sodium Ric Flair. But I think before we talk about this match, we should talk about the build-up and the events that happened to this because to me, this was actually one of the perfect... Conclusions to a, a perfect build to, to Sting winning the belt. You know, he in, in 89, the horsemen were baby faces. Sting had joined the group. He wanted to challenge Ric Flair for the belt, and he was basically told he couldn't. And essentially the horseman, Ole Anderson, in one of the great promos of the time, kicks Sting out of the group and the and the horseman beat the shit out of him and essentially they turn heel in the process. Um, and then I think it was a clash of the champions that like earlier that year in February or something. It was where there's a cage match and Sting is trying to climb the cage to get in the cage to confront to confront Flair and he legit seriously injures his knee. Was, the Americans would say he blows out his knee, I never quite know what that means, but basically he he, he needed reconstructive surgery on his knee, legit. And this scuppered the plans. And, and as you alluded to, Liam Mayen had to kind of fill time with Lex Luger while Sting got back to full health. But yeah, to me, this you know, the, the, the little bit of real life thrown into the storyline just made this even more of a, great build-up that finally after like you know six months eight months this match that you wanted to see was finally happening
1: yeah there was definitely an aspect of the babyface chase that came from that injury but it's funny but but because he didn't perform as much as they wanted him to at the box office you'd imagine that those involved in the situation will be absolutely convinced that it would have done better if it happened immediately after the turn but who knows? I, I think some guys are just never gonna. You know, there's there's only one Hulk Hogan, one Steve Austin, and if you're not gonna hit the jackpot, the best you can do is just find guys that will, will constantly bring in crowds and and to to a lesser extent draw some money in the good and the bad. And and they had a banker in sting. He just he was never going to be a Hogan, nowhere near a Hogan or a huge draw uh he's in the same bracket i guess as like you think of bret hart and Shawn michaels in the mid 90s where they were just what the doctor ordered for the wbf after the steroid trials and things like that and they, they moved to those uh smaller workhorses. both of them drew money and, and did all right and they did you know they weren't failures like a like a diesel was but they, they obviously they, they couldn't come anywhere close to a Hogan or Austin, and and Sting was very much like that. But that's what they wanted. They were hoping that this was going to be the big moment that that set them up for a fucking decade of business. And when they're yes, when they're when they're doing three million gates and hemorrhaging money to the point where even those where those really good gates are still not making them money earners in a in a calendar year. You have to think there's other things at play, but here we are. This is the match, and it's it's funny because if you, we'll we'll get into it as you go through the match. But if, just just think of all the matches Rick thing have had, and the and the quality, and sometimes the epic feel that some of them had, and th- this one should be at the top of the list. But it's probably a couple off the top for me.
0: Mm, the emotion, the emotion is certainly there, but um... yeah. Yeah, so I mean, well, let's let's have, have a look through this. So, I mean, I, to start off with, as always, WCW never got their sound mix right. So the music is blaring, but you can't hear the fans. Um, but you can see from their movements, Sting is getting a great reception. Um, the dudes with Attitude, which was um, <laughs> mentioned, JYD, um, Orndorff, the Steiners, They're all surrounding ringside to ensure that the horsemen can't interfere after their numerous stunts to retain the belt from Flair. Basically, in early '90, every trick in the book and then some new ones as well had been had been pulled by the horsemen to try and retain the belt. Um, I think was was it Capital Combat, him and Luger, where they had the cage match where the horsemen supposedly got control of the the uh, the the facility that that moved the cage and they lifted the cage and then ran in and beat Luger up and retained the belt for sting for for Flair. Um, so Gary Michael Capetto explains the steps, the dudes around the ring, it's no count out and no disqualification and only Anderson is handcuffed to elegante who ensures that he is well up the ramp. Um, These conditions have been set by Jim Hurd, the vice president of WCW, and it's also worth noting that at the Great American Bash, Sting's face paint is an American flag designed to make him the uber baby face. And all of this is basically what I, we've spoken about this numerous times, that the heel always has to get their comeuppance at the end of the day and this is flair's come up and so you know, it's finally he's painted himself into a corner there's no no escaping there's no wriggling out of this he's got to face Sting one-on-one and, and you know see who the better man is basically
1: theoretically that's exactly what we're getting and yeah for, for me the match is good and i like the i really like the aspect of having a bunch of gimmicks uh and you've got the no disqualification stipulation and yet they don't come into play ridiculously so it's not like there's a there's a there's not a cart full of weapons at ringside because it's no dq uh it's use subtlety and there's nothing wrong with that sometimes
0: yeah it's one of those things as well i kind of think you know if this was if this was the modern day and we had you know our pre-game show with renee young at a table there's so much you could talk about with the with the steps and the no dq and is there a way that the horseman could do something to to interfere because it's no dq it wouldn't get flair kicked out and there there's and you could have your video packages documenting the whole the whole story but i realize you know we're looking at this with 2018 eyes and this was a product in 1990 it was very very different um Sting dominates the first five minutes of the match, which you'd expect, till a thumb to the eye turns the tide in Flair's favour. But then uh, Sting takes a leaf out of his mate Luger's book and no sells a suplex. He then goes to the top rope for the 85th crossbody block of this show, which Jim Ross says is to test out his knee. Flair then kicks Sting in the bad knee, lands some wicked-sounding chops, um, and the crowd continued to be hot for this one um as i said yeah, you know there's so much emotional investment in this match the way it's all been laid out flair's really laying in the chops and working on the knee with kicks he's playing the vicious champ with his back to the wall who's determined to hold on to his title to absolute perfection here um, Sting manages to get the figure four leg lock on Flair who scrambles to the ropes Sting's on the offence till um, he disputes the two count with Nick Patrick Flair kicks his knee out from under him then for the third time in the match Sting no-sells Flair's offence and lifts Flair up for, up and down for a press slam by now Sting's chest is red with broken blood vessels in his chest from the force of Flair's chops um, who said uh, that Valter or Keith Lee were the first people to do that Sting whips Flair into the corner, hits a stinger splash followed by the Scorpion Deathlock. Oli Anson is trying to run in, but he's stopped by Elegante. Um, the, the other horsemen run down the ramp, but the dudes see them off to keep things one-on-one. The atmosphere is absolutely cracking now. Fans are on their feet. Jim Ross is doing an amazing job at conveying the drama and Flair's desperation to hold on to his title. Sting misses a knee-first charge into the corner, which Flair then goes for the figure four but Sting reverses that into a small package. Nick Patrick counts one, two, three, and Sting wins his first world title. The crowd go absolutely apeshit as fireworks go off to celebrate. Um, I would say this wasn't a classic match. And as you said, Liam, I think they've had better. It wasn't a classic match. Technically, um, too much no selling from Sting as well, but the storyline, the emotional investment of the fans was at a level that you don't see very often. Um, and yeah, as I said, heels always have to have their comeuppance at the end of the day, and this was Flair's. It felt like a changing of the guard from Flair to Sting, although obviously as we've mentioned, that that didn't happen for for Sting in the end. But um, it it was the right result. It was the 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 feel good ending for the show and for this arc of the storyline
1: yeah it, it was obviously the result they were going for the result they needed this result everyone wanted every fan wanted um as we mentioned before the, the stipulations weren't just there for for bookers to try and think of creative ways to get out of them it finally set things up i'm a huge fan of a, of a no disqualification or no holds barred thing where they're not immediately trying to kill each other. It just means there's not going to be a disqualification finish, and maybe they can they they can bend the rules a little bit. You know, we but obviously this wasn't a thing in 1990, but later on in life we did get more of a, the concept of relaxed rules for important matches, where the commentators yeah. would get over the fact that the the referee is going to be more lenient because this match is so important. This was before that, so I appreciate that when they say no disqualification, it doesn't mean there's a thousand steel chairs in the ring within five minutes. Everything was done right in that, and it was a very good match. But as I said, they, they'd end up having better, and there was, like a lot of it, if you think of like things like, maybe the best example is Mr. Perfect versus Shawn Michaels at SummerSlam 93 when you get a very good match, or a recent example, the best one, is uh, AJ Styles, Shinsuke Nakamura at WrestleMania, when they advertise Ooh. a match as being a classic in advance, you're cursing yourself, and there was that about this, they were talking about the chase, but there was also because they had that amazing, well, very, very good, but I think at the time as well, it, it turned a lot of eyes, especially with the, the the ongoing competition between NWA and WWE, when, when Flair and Sting in 98 had that made that draw at the clash that set a bar as well for what they could pull off and everyone was expecting this to be some yeah. huge five star change and it wasn't but it was very very good and you can't you can't be negative about it you can only really talk about what more it could have been which which isn't a bad place to be uh i've got to agree with you completely on the jim ross thing what matters to me the most is not only does he does he convey storytelling and emotion but he does so in a way you now he's the he is the archetype of a commentator who will scream and yell but you notice how he picks his battles with it he goes to the top of his voice when it matters most for maximum effect. He doesn't do it after every chop, after every punch, after every arm drag. Take note, fucking Ronaldo.
0: Not a fan, then.
1: Ah, oh, I mean, we, we could get into we could get into a whole thing because I'm not, but I'm going to focus on one thing here, and it happens a lot, and he's probably the worst of it, is that spouting clichés and shouting as much as possible does not make a good commentator. But those are two things that have been... Like exaggerated about Jim Ross's announcing game in his prime, he does you know he does get in good uh, buzzwords and phrases. His turn of phrase was always excellent. He does shout you know, when mankind came off the top of the hell in a cell, things like that. He he does really go to the top of his of his voice, but. He executed it with technique, and there's a lot of it's commentators out of there, action. yeah. And you you know, I've commentated not on wrestling but on a lot of other things. And there are techniques you have to use in, in getting things across. And you, especially because you have done wrestling commentary where, where, where a lot of these things are the case, uh, you, you, you have to use your, your, your tools wisely because otherwise you overuse yeah. them and they have no effect. Uh, exactly. Ross was you, excellent you. here.
0: Yeah, you, you build things up to the point that when the main event happens, you lose your shit for the main event, not for the, the third match. You know, it's, yeah, it's building things up, isn't it? Absolutely. But, so, I mean, let, let's talk about Sting's title reign, because Flair kind of disappeared from the scene, Um, we also we thought. Sting's reign was, was characterized by the feud with the Black Scorpion, which wasn't the graces to be generous um didn't portray him in a good light uh, allegedly they didn't know who it was going to be bef- bef- when they started it it was unveiled at Starcade 90 as rick flair um and a month later flair regained the belt from sting anyway what was it just weak booking weak heels what what, what do you think was the problem
1: it was a bit of both, and we, we've mentioned certain aspects of this on and off throughout the show. But yeah, I, I really don't think Sting was ever going to be a Hulk Hogan superstar. But yeah, the the booking probably took some gleam off of things because the Black Scorpion was always a, a weird thing. And we can criticise it as Die Hard wrestling fans, we can really shit on it. But the fact is, is especially when you don't even know what the end game is or when you see tv shows put in a, a, a an element of mystery a it thing there are there are clues there are things for the the hooks in it are the the, 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 just the little things where you, you know you offer the audience the opportunity to guess who it is when even they don't know who it is there's no consistency there's just a guy in a mask running at acting like he's threatening when he actually comes across as comical so i really didn't Grasp the the concept of doing a mystery whodunit thing with the, with with a masked man changing him. They, I think they, a lot of people would always mock her. Um, there was a few promos where Ole Anderson would use that voice distorter he loved so fucking much. The shot master voice distorter. Yeah, distortion. same same one for this one, and he would he would throw in little things about them bodybuilding together in California gyms in. Eighty-six or something like that uh, to try and offer some clues, but then they didn't know who it was, and the, so those things mean, meant nothing. And so, so why is an audience going to watch? They're trying to make you think it was the Ultimate Warrior at that point. But the thing is, is that's only going to work on diehard fans. Yeah, <laughs> you've you you're going to do the Who Done It? It has to be someone that's established within your your audience, really, that that is going to get those dormant. Uh, viewers watching, paying money, you know, rather than just watching on TV, they coming to the shows and things like that. But no, it's just, it's it was it was never going to work, and because it didn't work, we can really go in two footed afterwards and go, look, he fucking he, he, he pretended to twist the audience members' head around and all that, and rightfully so because it was awful. But but these things were were never thought through enough to pay off. And it was it was all the because remember Ric Flair at this point was always fighting being minimized by the people in charge at WCW, and for for me I, I liked his time away from the main event because if you remember he was you know him and the Horseman would feud with Doom a little bit I like stuff like that.
0: That was a great feud, yeah.
1: It's a combination because Sting was not going to be Hulk Hogan, and yet any chance of him at least being a a significant guy for their coffers was hindered by a shitty booking and the fact that even when they do draw good gates at this stage in their life they're losing money hand over fist because they don't know how to run a business but we've we've heard all the stories about this throughout those those existence the the plane tickets that never got used and the and the amount of money they'd blow on one little celebrity spot this was a thing they'd always do so he It's a miracle that they turned profits in the mid-90s with the amount of money they spent.
0: Very true. Just before we uh, go to our theme of the week, just want to mention a few upcoming events. Um, I will be hosting uh, an evening with Abyss and Joseph Park. No, I don't know how it's going to work. Um, On Saturday, the 1st of September at St. Paul's in Worthing. Um, And then in November, we've got four big nights with kayfabe events an evening with Scott Hall. We're in Portland House Cardiff on the 14th of November. Hotel Football at Old Trafford in Manchester, which I'm rather looking forward to on the 15th. On the 16th, we're in the Stanley Rooms in South Norwood in London. And on the 17th, we have an all day. It's fast becoming a bit of a wrestling convention at Sussex County Cricket Ground in Hove. Um. We've got Bill Apter with us for the last two nights. There's loads of other people. The the list of people coming to the 17th in Hove seems to be growing by the day. It's virtually a who's who of British wrestling. I think there can't be any shows happening that day because everyone's going to be in Hove. But for all the details there, go to facebook.com forward slash kayfabe events or uh, at kayfabe events on your Twitter. Plus IPW, uh, we are getting into anniversary season September the 22nd, the International Super 8 tournament happens to celebrate the 14th anniversary of the company. That's on the 22nd of September. The next night, we've got a weekend of the 23rd of September. It's Global Clash 2018 as Pro Wrestling Noah from Japan come to visit. Those are both happening at the casino rooms in Rochester. Um, We're also every first Wednesday of the month we're at Unit 9 in Milton Keynes which is one of the coolest venues around. Um, loads more happening. Check out at IPWUK on your Twitter or on your Facebook. Before we go any further then I suppose we should talk about the theme of the week and there is, there's really only one theme having already mentioned it. It's time to, to it's time for a bit of justice Liam it's time for us to hear the proper Midnight Express theme tune. And what a magnificent shoot this is! This, this is actually um, this. Com- do you know where this comes from?
1: i do tell.
0: It's um. There is there's a film um from the eighties. There's a film called Midnight Express, um, and it's um an adaptation of a true story of an American guy called Billy Hayes, who um very unwisely decides to smuggle a shitload of cocaine into Turkey and gets caught and gets put in Turkish prison. And it's all about him trying to cope with life in Turkish prison, which is very different to American prison and trying to get released. um, Trying to escape and, and so on. Um, John Hurt's in it as well. I think off the top of my head, It's one. is is one of the first uh, the first v- videos that uh, my brother got, and so I just remember watching it a lot because there wasn't much else on the telly at the time. Um, but it's a fantastic film. Not if you're squeamish, a bit gory in places. But um, this is this isn't the main theme of the film. This is called the chase, um, which, as the name would suggest, happens during a, a chase scene in the film. Um, and the name Midnight Express obviously comes from the film, as does the music. Um, it's just it's just synonymous with with the team, the Midnight Express. It is very much of the early or the late eighties, early nineties genre of music as well, and it it just fit them like a glove.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because you think of how many great themes were custom made for certain people and certain characters. And rightly so, it's a smart thing to do, but in this instance, they've pretty much nicked it because of the namesake aspect. And then in retrospect, every everyone who's watched five minutes of wrestling thinks, oh, that's the Midnight Express tag team.
0: Yeah, it's it's just great. I love this tune. It is one yeah, you know, is a a tune that you can listen to in in, in ordinary life without feeling embarrassed. Yeah, you know, unlike something like you know I'm an ass man or something like that.
1: I can't believe you even english Englishify that. Unites I'm an ass man. Don't be so embarrassed. I, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm sorry. I do apologise. Anyway, um, that is all for us for this time. We'll be back very shortly, we'll be looking back over another WCW pay per view. Thank you so much for downloading this whether it be on our iTunes, Podbean, or the IWN. We really do appreciate every single one of you listening. If you do like this, please spread the word. Uh, you can reach us on social media at BecauseWCW on Twitter, uh, Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW on your Facebook. So on behalf of Liam Hatley, this is the Twisted Genius saying, I'll see you ringside.